Our scripture lesson this morning is from the message translation of the Bible and from the Gospel of Matthew in the 16th chapter. Let us listen for his word. When Jesus arrived at the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what are people saying about who the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some think that he is John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and some Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But he pushed them, he pressed them, and he said, how about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter shouted out, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus came back. God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. My Father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, really are. You're Peter, a rock. This is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. And that's not all. You will have complete and free access to God's kingdom, keys to open any and every door, no more barriers between heaven and earth, earth and heaven. And yes on earth is a yes in heaven. And a no on earth is a no in heaven. Then he swore to the disciples to secrecy. He made them promise that they would not tell that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God. been a long time since I've stood here. Uh, feels kind of good. Um, and one of the things that I've discovered is that the trifocals that I had when I preached a lot worked beautifully. But guess what? I have to get down like this. No, they're, my eyes are wearing, the, the glasses are fine, but the eyes are going. So I've, I've noticed that a, a little layoff, layoff of time uh, it means that I've got to uh, do some changing with the glasses. I want to thank Brian for the invitation to preach this morning. Brian and his family, as you know, are having a wonderful time in South Africa with Sue Ellen's parents and introducing their son to their other grandparents. But also, I am aware that this day represents or marks the 245th anniversary of our country. Now, my focus today is going to be in a little different direction. There's a protocol for where the flags should be placed in a church. And that protocol is determined by the chancel area 
the pulpit area and the elevation of the pulpit in the chancel relating to the floor of the sanctuary. Several years ago, a very good friend of mine and a person that you all know, but I will not use his name because I don't want <clears throat> you to call him up and ask him if this is true, but it is true. <laughs> At a church in Atlanta, the congregation was already on whatever the day was to, to celebrate, and they had their flags in what they thought was the appropriate position. And one gentleman in the back looked, and he kind of scratched his head, and he came up, and he picked up the American flag and took it over and placed it where the Christian flag is and the Christian flag over here. Well... The next Sunday, there was another gentleman who did the same thing. He put them back like they had originally been. And it went on for several weeks, back and forth. Where does this flag go? Where does this flag go? Finally, my friend became disgusted with the whole process. And during the week, he took both flags and he rolled them up and he went downstairs and put them in the basement behind the furnace and there they sat for about 10 years and one day a janitor down there found these flags and behind the furnace and he's saying what what's this all about so the flags have been restored they have been put in their proper place now what I want to share with you I want to share with as much emotion and compassion that I can. Prior to the time when this scripture, or talking about Jesus uh, in this particular passage of scripture, he had traveled many, many months all across the landscape. Uh, he was into healing people. He made the lame walk. He actually raised one from the dead. He did many miracles of healing for the people. And I suspect, quite frankly, since Jesus was human and he was like us after all that time, he was weary and tired and worn out. But he's gathered his disciples after they had fed the 4,000 people food. And he said to the people, what are they saying about me? Who is this guy? Who am I? It's a simple question. And I want to ask it to you today. And I want you to keep answering it silently, if you will, in your own mind. Who is this man? Who do you, not the disciples, but who do you say that I am? We know what the world says. He was a great prophet on a par with Muhammad and Buddha. He was a great teacher and an interpreter of the Jewish scriptures. Or some said that he was a great philosopher on the order of Socrates and Plato. 
but not quite as practical. And then there are those who declare, if or he is a fake and a fraud, he is obsolete, an anachronism of a bygone age with little relevance for the 21st century. We know what the world says. Even more impressive is what the word says. Isaiah writes in his book, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Malachi, another one of those little short books in the Old Testament that we don't read very much, calls him the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, Timothy calls him our mediator between God and man. And Paul also, in the letter of Philemon, says, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And and Peter, in his epistles, calls Christ our chief shepherd. And John, in his letter from the Isle of Patmos, calls him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, what do you say? Who do we say that he is? Jesus puts his disciples on the spot. Who do men say, notice that, who do men, others, say that the Son of Man is? What are they saying about me? And their answers, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say that you are Elijah or one of the other prophets, Jeremiah, or, and then comes the biggie. But who do you Who do you say that I am? You know, in the long run, it's not what the world says that matters. It's what you say that really counts. Impulsive Peter blurts out his answer, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter's testimony. What is your testimony? Traditionally, there have been three statements that people have made about Christ through the years. Three key words that people have used to describe their relationship with him. The words may not be ones that you would use to describe your relationship with him. But ask yourself this morning if the experience fits your experience. Who is Christ to you? I suspect some of us would say he is my savior. In the devotional booklet, The Upper Room, one writer tells of asking a friend, do you really believe that Jesus went to the burial place and called Lazarus up from the dead? And his friend said, I never knew Lazarus 
you know, I don't know Lazarus. I know what Jesus did for him. And I understand that Lazarus had been dead only for four days. I had been dead for years, was his answer. I had gone to pieces. I was both down and out and my family had gone to pieces and my wife and my children had left me. My business had gone under. One by one, my friends had gone away. And then Jesus spoke to me and he became alive again. And now my family is back. My friends recognize me and all those things have been made new. I don't know a whole lot about Lazarus, but one thing I do know, Jesus called me out of death into a new life. Someone put it like this, when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with gladness. For all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. There was a young woman who lived under very difficult conditions at home. She was dissatisfied. Her discontent was manifest in her face, which is true in so many situations. Her manner and her tone, the tone of her voice, And trifles, simple little things, really irritated her. And it had been possible she would have gladly traveled to the end of the earth. She would go somewhere else to get away from her disagreeable environment. And sometime later, a friend met her and saw the smiling face of this young woman and could tell that a change had taken place. And she said, how are things at your home? And the young lady said, oh, they're just the same. But I am different. I'm different. Christ made a difference. Has Christ made a difference in your life? Be truthful. Thomas Kelly has written a modern classic concerning the inner life in a book called A Testament of Devotion. And in his early years, he was often restless and unhappy. And then as his biographer was later to tell, he said, a new life direction took place. No one knows exactly what happened, but a drained period of his life was over. He moved toward adequacy, a fissure in him since uh, to close, and cliffs caved in and filled the chasms, and what was divided grew together. And such has been the experience taking place within you. There's a man who desires to close the fissures in our lives and and he, he wants to heal our brokenness. There's a man on the cross smiling down upon us even though his heart felt sorrow 
who wants to forgive our sins and release us from our resentment, cleanses us from all unrighteousness and heals us and makes us whole, he is my Savior. That would be the testimony of some of you, maybe many of you. But others would say, but wait a minute, he, <clears throat> he's my master. Soren Kierkegaard, who has been called one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last generation, believed that no man is truly alive today who simply acts as a spectator toward the great issues of life and death. The only man who knows true existence is the man who, here and now, infinitely and completely gives himself to the call of Christ. Thomas Akempis, a 16th century theologian, wrote, Jesus hath many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. Few bearers of his cross. He has many seekers of comfort, but few for tribulation. He finds many companions of his, of his table, but few of his fasting. Many follow Jesus that they may eat of his loaves, but few that may drink from his cup. Is Christ the master? Is he the master of your life? <laughs> Too often we're kind of like the old farmer who wrote his girlfriend in town and he said, my dearest Abigail, no mountain is too high and no sea is too wide to keep me from your side. I'll do anything, anything to catch even one glimpse of you. Love, Henry. P.S. If it don't rain Saturday night, I'll try to drop by and say hi. Too many of us want the crown without the cross. We want Christ to be our savior, but not our master. Yet his call is a call to total and complete commitment. And such a commitment takes time. We shouldn't be disappointed if we can't overhaul ourselves from the top to the bottom overnight. No significant change in our lives ever happens that quick. There's more than a hint of warning in the comment of an illiterate farmer intent on learning to read and to write. And after some study, he took a pencil and he began to scribble. And suddenly he shouted to his wife, Maria, come here, come here. I can write. And she came and she looked and she said, that's wonderful. What does it say? He said, one thing at a time, I haven't learned to read yet. Christian growth takes time, but it does occur. We can have the same mind within us that was within Christ Jesus. He can be our savior. He can be our master. <laughs> and those of you who are the old school, here's the third and final point. Some of us would take a step further and say that he is my Lord. 
A deeply moving document came to light recently when a mother and her three-year-old daughter met their minister at the market. And the little girl said, Mother, looking at the preacher, is that Jesus? And the mother told the pastor about this incident, and he wrote a letter to the child which assured her that no, he was not Jesus, that she must have thought that he was Jesus because he was so closely associated with the church where she went to Sunday school and, and heard talks about Jesus. And then he went on to write this letter. Still, your question haunts me. You're really the first one who has ever mistook me for him. Just imagine, in 43 years, no one has seen enough of Jesus in me to ask such a question as yours. And in a very short time, you won't be asking that question either. You'll know what a vast difference there is, and yet you're right. A person ought to be able to look at any member of the church and see a resemblance there to Jesus. Seeing the kindness of a Christian, one ought to be able to connect it with his kindness. And seeing the love of a Christian has for all people, high caste or outcast, one ought to be reminded of an even greater love which Jesus has for everyone. Any spectator ought to see in every Christian a great desire to do the will of God, as was in Jesus. Without realizing it, Carol, you have asked a question which leads to the greater question all Christians must ask. All right, if you're beginning to waver a little bit, wake up. All Christians must ask, when people look at me, do they see anything that even remotely rem reminds me of Jesus? You see, when Christ becomes a living presence in our lives, then our lives become something beautiful and he can use to extend his lordship throughout all the world. It was related that during the reign of Oliver Cromwell, the government ran out of silver coinage. Comrade Cornwell sent his men to the cathedral to see if they could find any silver. And they reported back, the only silver we can find is in the statue of the saints standing in the corners. And his reply was, good. Let's melt down the saints and put them into circulation. Certainly today the need of the hour is that the saints be melted down and put into circulation. And that's who we are, the saints of the church. He's my savior. He is my master. He is my Lord. He is my Lord when I allow him to reveal himself through me to others. When I am a channel for his love, his compassion, his forgiveness, and his grace. In short, as the pastor learned in his experience with the little girl, 
when others can see Christ through us. We'll know then that we have his mind within us, for it was through Christ himself that men first beheld God. When Michelangelo painted the great ceiling in the chapel in Rome, instead of doing it on the walls, which would have been the normal thing, he managed to elevate himself and do it in the ceiling. Yet when people go there, they gaze not at the ceiling. They do not look up to the ceiling, but they've all been given little mirrors. And they hold those in their hand and they look down and then they can see the reflection in the mirror. Who is he? The world wants to know our testimony. Is he our savior, our master, our Lord? Let me close with a, just a side comment. When I was in seminary in Atlanta <clears throat> years ago, uh, the seminary at Emory University had a, a man who taught there. I'm not sure if he was a professor or just a visiting preacher. Fred Craddock was his name. Perhaps you, some of you may be familiar with him. And at the end of every sermon, he would say, as I say to you, so what? 